I'm Ed Adams, and this is the Weekly Genealogy Toolkit, the podcast that helps new genealogists get the most out of their research time and avoid the most common pitfalls. There's a funny saying that gets used frequently among the people that I work with. I'll often hear someone say something along the lines of, stop looking at this through a soda straw. I think it's kind of a funny thing to say because, I mean, we all know exactly what the person means when they say this, but who the heck ever tried to observe anything through a soda straw? I guess it's a, an exaggeration to make a point, and what of course they mean is that whoever they're talking to is, isn't taking into account enough of the full context of an issue to provide valuable input, but it always makes me think of standing out in the front driveway with my daughter, looking through our telescope at Saturn. It was a nice night, with a cloudless sky, and we don't have much light pollution where I live. Just looking up, I could easily see Saturn, and I wanted to show my daughter the planet's rings. Our telescope is pretty fancy, and I'd used it to spot Saturn before on my own, but that night I was really struggling. The telescope has a little sight running along the length of the tube that allows you to get a rough alignment pretty easily, and then you can fine-tune once you look through the eyepiece of the telescope itself. The problem is, the magnification of the telescope is so powerful that unless you get the aiming sight right on, when you look through the telescope, you'll see nothing but black and a faint background star or two. That's exactly what happened that night, as my daughter kept asking if she could have a turn. The problem is that while looking through the telescope, there was nothing definitive that I could see and adjust off of. I knew I couldn't see Saturn, but I couldn't see anything else either. It was just the blackness of space. I had no idea whether I needed to adjust up or down or what. Now, I eventually figured out that the aiming sight on the telescope had come a little loose and just needed to be tightened. Within a few minutes, I had my daughter up on her footstool, looking at the rings of Saturn. It was a pretty cool night. But that's what the phrase about soda straws always makes me think about. Likewise, in genealogy, we often find ourselves peering through the telescope of time in hopes of catching a glimpse of that next generation of ancestors, but we see nothing. We made our research plan, and we developed a list of sources to track down, but through no fault of our own, the sources may not exist, or the information we want might not be on the source. So what do you do when it's just sheer blackness of space, or rather the dreaded no result in your search? We don't have the luxury of being able to back away and see the whole picture with our naked eye and adjust from there, we're truly looking through the soda straw. Another phrase that I think illustrates the point that you might say in genealogy we're sometimes trying to describe a room having only looked through the keyhole. So how do we widen that keyhole? How do we widen the aperture of that soda straw? We start exploring our target ancestors, fan club. And no, you don't need an ancestor to have been the 19th century version of Taylor Swift for this to work. FAN stands for Friends and Family, Associates, and Neighbors. It's a term that was coined by Elizabeth Sean Mills, who quite literally wrote the book on doing genealogy. An overview of the FAN methodology is pretty simple. When you first hit that brick wall and can't find anything on your target ancestor, despite an exhaustive research of the potential sources, widen your net and start looking at the people who were important to your target ancestor. Think about your own life. You're not an island entire of yourself, right? Even if you only have a few close friends, when you open the aperture and look at your extended family and your associates and your neighbors, your life is actually wrapped up and entangled with so many others. 
If you start to look into those people for your target ancestor, you'll be expanding that soda straw bit by bit until you have a much better picture of that individual's life. Sometimes, fan research can make you feel a bit like you're losing your way. As you're reading the will of a neighbor of your great-grandfather's brother, you might sit back and ask yourself, what am I doing? It's a good question. And keep that question in your hip pocket when doing fan research, because you can definitely go too far. But how is the fan network even useful? The first value that I try to keep in the forefront of my mind is the difference between knowing and understanding in genealogy. It's the one thing to know the name and key facts associated with one of your ancestors, but it's another to have an understanding of his or her life. You'll never get a perfect understanding, but once you know more about the context of their life, their decisions start to make more sense. You can start to hypothesize a motive for why they did things, and a personality, a a partial and conjectural one, but a personality starts to form. I think there's value in that by itself. I like to build a collection of characters within my ancestry, as opposed to just knowing names and dates. But having a sense of who your target ancestor was helps you construct better hypotheses to prove or disprove through additional research. The other value that doesn't always appear when doing fan research, but is the big value, is that researching these other people can sometimes help you circumnavigate that brick wall entirely. I can't tell you how many dead ends I have managed to blast through by utilizing fan research. It's a particularly useful methodology when researching women in your family tree who perhaps didn't leave as many records themselves. By looking into the important people in her life, you may discover her maiden name. But how? Let's start with how do we find these people? There is no fan database out there, so you'll have to dig them up yourselves but it's surprisingly easy, and once you get a hang of it, you'll start seeing them everywhere. The easiest place to start is on the census. Everyone on that sheet is a neighbor of your ancestor. These are the people that your ancestor likely saw and interacted with on a daily basis. While the story of American history has largely been a story of migration, prior to World War II, those migrations weren't generally individual. So as you're looking at those other names on the census sheet, there's a good chance that one or more of them is related to your target ancestor in some way. You just don't know how yet. Write down at least the first few families who are next to your ancestor's family on the census. These are the neighbors part of the network. If your target ancestor was an immigrant and you have a passenger record, you might still have some good neighbors to work with. Most passenger records will list the last place of residence in the country from which they departed. This isn't always the home in the old country, but more often than not, it is. So if your ancestor's passenger record indicates that she was from Lviv or or Lemberg, you might be out of luck because it's a major city and just because another passenger was from Lviv doesn't mean much. But if it says she was from Zaluzia, a tiny farming community, then I would definitely look through the entire passenger manifest for other people from Zaluzia. In fact, I would probably search through the entire Passenger Manifest database for people from Zaluzia. It's that small of a town. Witnessed or attested records are another good source of people for the fan network. Anyone who signed as a witness or provided a corroborating account is an associate. At worst, you've identified a friend of your ancestors, but perhaps you've found a cousin. Honestly, there are plenty of other sources that you can use to find members of your target ancestors' fan club, and now that you're thinking about it, you're going to see them everywhere. 
So now that you know where to find these people, what do you do with them? Mainly, you try to determine what the nature of their relationship with your target ancestor was. Did they just live next to them? Or were they also business associates? Or perhaps they were a cousin or in-law? The best way to determine the relationship is to treat the individual like a target ancestor and start learning everything that you can about them and their family. This is where you can get a little carried away and lose yourself. So as always, build and update your research plan as you go, and don't be afraid to occasionally ask yourself, what am I doing? Before closing this episode out, I wanted to provide you with a short case study to have as an example of how effective fan research can be in getting past those brick walls. Many years ago, I was doing some research on George and Ruth Nicholson of Table Rock, Nebraska. I had managed to find George's parents and a generation on past that, but Ruth was a mystery to me. The earliest record I could find for her was the 1880 census in which she was already married to George, and they were living with George's mother. The census indicates that Ruth and her parents were both born in Illinois, but I was a little dubious about that because other census documents for different years indicated that she was born in Illinois, but that her parents were either both born in New York or one was born in New York and one in New Jersey. Without a marriage certificate or anything else to help me find the maiden name for Ruth, I was left looking at the fan club. Now later, I would find a few sources that provided her maiden name, but they were sources that at that time I was not acquainted with, so I ended up taking the long way around, but I got to the destination anyway. So resolving to take the fan route, I moved back to George Nicholson and fleshed out his family and his siblings. He was the eldest, and his next brother died at the age of six, but then his next brother after that, Herman Nicholson, married a woman named Mary Super. I started to build out her family and learned some interesting things about them. But at some point, I sat back and asked myself, what am I doing? I had built out her full immediate family and Although it was a pretty large family, none of them looked like they had any connection with something that might lead me back to Ruth. So I left Herman and his wife, and I moved on to the next brother, James Nicholson. James was married to a woman named Alice. Thankfully, I could find a marriage license and certificate that showed not just her maiden name of Shaw, but showed that her father was a man named J.W. Shaw. When I looked up J.W. Shaw, I found him in the 1880 census living in Table Rock, Alice showed up as having been from Illinois, and her father, John W., showed up as having been from New York. That piqued my interest, because there were sources for Ruth Nicholson that indicated the exact same. Born in Illinois, father from New York. That gave me a good hypothesis that, at the very least, this Shaw family had moved along the same migration pattern that Ruth's family had. I thought that if I followed them back to Illinois, I might be able to look around and find someone named Ruth that I could investigate further. I didn't have to dig very far at all. When looking at the 1870 census, John W. Shaw, still living in Table Rock, was living with his wife Maria, his daughter Alice, and a nine-year-old girl named Ruth Eckert. She was the right age to be George's wife in 1880, and was listed as having been born in Illinois as expected. Now, I couldn't exactly call that mystery solved just yet. I wanted more evidence. But that short bit of fan investigating had given me a very solid lead that I was pretty sure was the woman I was looking for. I was able to use that surname, Eckert, as a basis of continued searching. I made a hypothesis that Ruth was living with John W. Shaw because his wife, Maria, must have been an Eckert as well, 
I found a collection of biographies of prominent people in the county, which had amongst it old John Shaw. That biography, written while John was still alive, confirmed that his wife was an Eckert, and listed exactly where in Illinois they'd gotten married. Following that clue back, then again looking up neighbors up and down the census, I found Ruth's family. Of course, like I said, I would have probably eventually knocked down that brick wall as I ultimately found other sources that answered the question more directly, but that had to wait for me to develop experience with other sources. Fan club investigation can work really well, even with the most basic of sources. So if you've got a brick wall or two that you'd like to get past, I hope you give this method a try. It feels a bit like a cheat code when you start getting good at it. If you're looking through the telescope and see nothing but black, remember that you can widen your aperture a bit and then adjust from there. At the very least, you're going to spend some time gaining experience, making a research plan and developing and testing hypotheses, validating or rejecting sources, and understanding the context of the world that your ancestor lived in. At the end of the day, that's what makes good genealogists. So it's a win-win effort. I hope that something I've said today helps you or at least motivates you to get into your family history. If you find something interesting and want to share, please reach out at the WGT pod on Twitter or leave a review. Thanks for listening and see you next time.